This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That is Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Guys, welcome to show day. We're so glad to have you here with us. Keep that scripture in mind as we get into today's episode. And guys, if you have not left a five-star review and a few sentences, let us know why you like this show. That's one way to get the show out to other people as opposed to you just sharing it with them. So if you like what we're doing here, please share that around. Also, we are mainly a donation ministry. We're mainly a donation thing. And so if you want more content like this, if you want to support some of the crazy stuff we have coming in 2023, best way to do that is to hop on board. It's guys like you giving 20 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month, whatever, that are helping us create this content to help men around the globe be equipped to push back darkness. So go to undaunted.life backslash donate. That will be in the show notes. Again, just a reminder, last week I talked about this, but we are partnered up with Origin so you guys can try out all of their great products on the Origin side. They've got geese, the best jujitsu geese on the planet. They've got boots, they've got jeans, they've got some really dope new boots that have like denim material in it. And then on the Jocko Fuel side, they've got the Jocko Go energy drinks. They've got all the supplements. They've got the milk. They've got everything over there. But I do have a new promo code. So for months now, I've been talking about the promo code Kyle, but some jerk put uh, my promo code on some website somewhere. So the new promo code, if you go to Undaunted, or uh, the new promo code is Undaunted. There you go. So OriginMain.com or OriginUSA.com, that is in the show notes. You can use my promo code Undaunted to get 10% off your order. And guys, also something that I haven't talked about that I you know released here a couple of months ago is I have a new abortion resource for you guys. So that's going to be important considering some of the subject matter of today's episode, but it's a white paper. And this white paper is called How to Engage the Top 18 Pro-Abortion Arguments. So this is actually a speech that I will travel around and give. It's a speech that I gave here recently, even at my home church. How to Engage the Top 18 Pro-Abortion Arguments is the white paper that goes along with that. Because the, the name of the, the speech is just how to engage pro-abortion arguments, but I actually kind of break it down at the end because we spend a lot of time actually digging into individual arguments. Like, what do you say when somebody says my body, my choice, or you only care about the baby before they're born? Or what about in the case of rape and incest? Or, you know, even if we wanted this baby to go to term, there wouldn't be one of uh, anyone available to adopt it. I equip you guys to respond to all of that. So in the show notes or right here, you can go to undaunted.life backslash abortion undaunted.life backslash abortion. Trade me your email address and I'll shoot you this over to you in, in a PDF form so it'll be a really, really good thing for you guys. So today uh, in the quick or sorry, it used to be the quick, quick hitters because I did that once. But in the quick hitters segment, we're going to discuss Trump preemptively attacking his potential 2024 Republican primary opponents, a federal judge ruling that Joe Biden's student loan debt cancellation is unconstitutional. Matt Walsh from the Daily Wire refusing to use God or the Bible in his arguments. The U.S. quietly putting troops in Ukraine and a UFC fighter boldly preaches the gospel in a Muslim country. So the first thing that we need to talk about today, and obviously you can see this from the title of today's episode, is baby murder wins the midterms. Because if, if I look back on the midterms, that is one thing that basically sticks out to me like a sore thumb is it seems like I was right. And we'll get to that. But the midterms were supposed to be a clean sweep of sorts for the Republican Party. And as we all saw, and as I talked about on last week's show in detail, that certainly didn't happen. And unfortunately, ended up being a clean sweep for people that love abortion. Okay, so last week on the episode, I briefly mentioned that there were pro-abortion measures that were approved in five states last week. Okay, you know, some were, you know, uh, meant to be pro-abortion, some were meant to be, you know, pro-life legislation, but they all went the way of the pro-abortion crowd, the pro-choice crowd. And that was in California, Michigan, Vermont, Montana and Kentucky. But I, I want to dig into detail on all of these, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I do want to give you a little bit more context as to what all was approved into those states, because when I was preparing last week's episode, we didn't have the final numbers, we just had the final results. So let's start with California. This, uh, what was you know on the ballot in California was Proposition 1, and that would add an amendment to the California state constitution to enshrine the right of abortion constitutionally 
in the state of California. So the text of Proposition 1 states this, quote, The state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom in their most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose to refuse contraceptives, unquote. So not surprisingly, 65% of California voters voted to approve Proposition 1, which effectively makes, this is crazy, but it effectively makes abortion legal in California at any point in the pregnancy, including the day of birth, for any reason, paid for by taxpayer dollars. Okay, so that's what's going on in California. Now let's go to Michigan. So Michigan had something called Proposition 3, and this is according to CBS News. The proposition amends Article 1 of the state's constitution to add a section that states, quote, every individual has a fundamental right to reproductive freedom, which entails the right to make and effectuate decisions about all matters relating to pregnancy, including but not limited to prenatal care, childbirth, postpartum care, contraception, sterilization, abortion care, abortion care, miscarriage management, and infertility care, unquote. So the amendment states that while the state can regulate abortion, it cannot prohibit an abortion that a medical professional deems necessary to protect the physical and mental health of a pregnant person. Again, that's directly from that, a pregnant person, as if we don't know that that can only be a woman. But again, they, they kind of sneak in the language of not just the woman's physical health, but also their mental health, which basically means abortion for any reason and we don't care. 55.8% of Michigan voters voted to approve that measure. So not entirely surprising. And then we'll get into another state where that was not entirely surprising, and that's Vermont. So they had Article 22, the Reproductive Liberty Amendment. So this would add an amendment to the Vermont state constitution to enshrine the right to abortion. So this is a quote from the legislation here. It intends to protect, quote, personal reproductive autonomy unless justified by a compelling state interest, unquote. Now, as you can imagine, at no point in the legislation do they even describe what a compelling state interest would be in keeping someone alive. Because typically, the most basic argument that you can make is the compelling state interest in someone living is that they will live and then eventually pay taxes in that state, which will help you pay for everything that you want for that state. But 76% of Vermont voters voted to support that measure. Effectively, it makes abortion legal in Vermont at any point in the pregnancy, including the day of birth, for any reason paid for by taxpayer dollars, just like California. Now, there weren't a whole lot of pro-life people that had any hope that California, Michigan, and Vermont would vote in any way other than they did. But then there were two outliers that was very shocking how these turned out. So let's start with the state of Kentucky. There was an initiative uh, initiative to amend the state constitution to explicitly state that there is no right to an abortion. Okay. So if approved, it would have made it nearly impossible to legally uh, challenge anti-abortion legislation in Kentucky. Okay. 52% of Kentucky voters, a deep, deep red state voted against the measure. So it failed. And then we get to Montana. There was a ballot initiative that would criminalize healthcare providers this is just crazy. I can't believe I'm even having to say this sentence, but it would criminalize healthcare providers if they did not take reasonable actions to save an infant born alive, including after an attempted abortion. So let's set the stage. So you're a woman, you're, you're in there, you're getting an abortion that's after the point of viability. So this baby can live outside the womb. I just posted even here recently that there was a 21 uh, week of gestation baby named Curtis that is alive and outside the womb and, and thriving. We need to pray for that baby. Go to my Instagram if you want to see more information on that. But the, the, imagine a 21, a 25, a 40 week gestation baby that is going to be aborted but instead the abortion doesn't turn out to be successful, which is to say that the baby lives, okay? So Montana put forward a ballot initiative that would make it illegal for the medical professionals to not care for that human life that is now alive outside the womb. It's always been alive from the moment of conception, but now it is alive geographically located outside of the womb. 52.4% of Montana voters voted against this measure. So 52.4% of these voters in Montana said that if a baby were born alive, even after a botched abortion, that we cannot come after the medical care providers for essentially giving that child the death penalty, setting them to the side and waiting for them to expire. In Montana. Okay? Now, the thing about it is, I've talked about this a lot, 
Democrats have poured literally, literally, just in this midterm cycle, millions of dollars, tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars into this one issue. Of all the spending on all ads for Democrats in this entire cycle and every single race, the number one thing that they spent money on was the abortion issue. The number one thing. They, and again, there's a ton of misinformation. They're telling women that, hey, if you get an ectopic pregnancy, you're not going to be able to get treated for that. Hey, if you have a uh, miscarriage, you could potentially go to jail for that. They're, they're basically saying all these lies to women and women and stupid men are buying into this nonsense. And it worked. It worked like a charm because I've been saying for months on this show that I had an inkling that abortion would loom very, very large in the midterms. But I was sensitive to other people's arguments. You know, we had the guys on from 40 Days for Life. You know, there are a lot of other political pundits that I listen to that I trust their opinions. And they're like, you know, li listen, this is not going to be a major issue. This isn't even going to be in the top five of major issues because the economy's too bad. We're on the brink of nuclear war over in Ukraine. Uh, the, the southern border is a porous border. It basically doesn't exist. We have fentanyl overdoses that are far exceeding any other deaths in the country right now. COVID still think like whatever. They, they gave all these other different reasons why abortion would not be a major, major issue, but it just ended up being a major issue. And Democrats got exactly what they wanted, which was to convince people of the extremism of people on the right, of pro-life people, and how they're basically coming after their personal bodily autonomy or the bodily autonomy of the women in their lives that they love. Okay. But now we need to talk about why we know that. So we're a week after the midterms and there still are races that haven't been called, which, you know, eventually we'll have to talk way, way, way more about that. But what was supposed to happen is that suburban women were supposed to, you know, crash hard for Republicans in the midterm cycle. And so were independents. And neither one of those things happened. Okay. So I think that the, uh, some of the exit polling showed that independence broke actually one point for Democrats. It was like 49% for Democrats, 48% for Republicans. And I don't know what the other couple of percentages would have gone to, but exit polling in this showed that 68%, 68% of unmarried women voted for Democrats in the midterms. That's a 37 point margin over Republican candidates. 37 point margin over Republican candidates. So for comparison, the same poll, the same exit poll found that married men broke for Republicans by 20 points. Married women broke by broke for Republicans by 14 points. Unmarried men broke Republican by seven points. Again, married men, 20 points Republican. Married women, 14 points Republican. Unmarried men, seven points Republican. But 68%, a 37 point margin to the Democratic side for unmarried women. And another stat is 72% of women between the ages of 18 and 29, which is a very, very important cohort of voters going forward, obviously voted Democrat. 72% of 18 to 29 year old women voted Democrat. Okay. Now there are a lot of reasons for this, but I'm going to break it down to just a few because I could spend a lot of time talking about this. One of the first reasons I want to talk about is that single liberal women want to make sure that they can have sex with whomever they wish and to be able to kill any baby conceived in those acts if they so choose. Because again, we've bought into this second, third, and now fourth wave feminist lie and the sexual revolution lie that if you're a woman and you can't spread your legs for every available dude that you deem worthy to engage in this act with you, that somehow you're missing out. That it's all those bonneted and long-dressed women that, you know, just sit at home and have sex with one man and have all these kids and take care of them and teach them at, at home and, and cook and, you know, make sure that everything's squared away at the house, that that is not the life that you want. What you want is that corner office position. You want to work, you know, a hundred billable hours a, a week at some law firm somewhere. You know, you want to be the dominant boss B. You want to do all those different things and you want to be able to drink and go out out and buy as many Armani uh, dresses or, you know, belt buckles or whatever as you want to. You want to go on vacations. You want to sleep with as many men as you want to, but you don't want any of the consequences that could come from that decision. And they would say consequences, right? Obviously, it's a beautiful thing when a new life has been created, but these people would look at that as a consequence. So that's one reason. Another reason for why it broke this way in the midterms is since many of these women do not intend to ever be in a loving, monogamous marriage at any point, they need the United States government to be their sugar daddy. Because again, 
these women don't have anyone that can take care of them, right? Because they've bought into the lie that they need to be self-sufficient. They don't need a man. They need a man to basically get their you know, sexual rocks off, but they don't need a man to support them. They don't need any of those different things. And what they realize is if they're not one of those corner office boss bees, then at some point they are going to need some help. And who's going to be there to help them? U.S. government sugar daddy. That's going to be available to help them. And also the U.S. government sugar daddy is going to ensure that they can continue to kill their children as a, as a form of birth control. Whoops, I, I, you know, I forgot to tell the guy to wear a condom. Oh, I got pregnant. Good thing I can just run down to Planned Parenthood real quick. Even in one of those mobile clinics that's sitting on the other side of the border of my backwards red state. And another reason here, and this is perhaps the, the most nefarious reason, this has been part of the plan for Democrats for decades. And we're just now seeing the fruits of it because there has been a target. A lot of people have spent a lot of time on this. So I'm just going to basically just be skimming the surface, but there has been a targeted destruction of the nuclear family in the West since the 1950s or so. So in since the 1950s, if you look at any sociological data, marriage rates have plummeted. Single motherhood rates have skyrocketed. Fatherlessness has exploded. We've talked about that a lot on the show. And also there's been a targeted destruction of communities. Even the concept of communities, look at the book Bowling Alone, but specifically communities of faith. And because of these two targeted destructions, right, destruction of the nuclear family, destruction of communities, specifically communities of faith, it has created an entire class of people, in this case, a lot of single women, unmarried women, that have to depend on the government to be there for them, cradle to grave. They have to. There's no other choice. I saw a tweet as I was looking uh, at the stuff for this web episode. It's from someone named Inez Stepman, and I believe that's, that's a gal. She's a senior policy analyst at Independent Women's Forum. She tweeted this. We have to reckon with this as a political force. On the right, we love to mock and complain about this, but millennials will have the highest proportion of unmarried and childless women hitting 40, probably in all of human history, and they will vote to ruin your life. Man. Like that is a a damnable thing, but gosh, can you say that Inez is wrong here? Because I can't, because I think the right may have gotten a a, a big smack in the face in these midterms by just whistling past the graveyard on this group of people. They were going after suburban women, but a lot of those women are married with children. They just happened to not like Donald Trump very much. So they broke heavily for Joe Biden in 2020, but on where we're at right now, These women are are concerned about the amount of money it's costing them to fill up their SUVs with gas and to go to the grocery store and get just the normal things they need for their family, right? But millennials, a lot of millennial single childless women will be hitting the age of 40. These are not conservatives, nor will they be conservatives. And as I was thinking about this, I almost, you know, named the episode something in this vein, but it's almost like we found something that conservatism can't fix. Because, I mean, there, there's literally an endless list of things that conservatism as a political philosophy cannot fix. But conservatism certainly can't fix the single narcissistic lost woman problem. It just can't. So the, the, the conservatives simply have no real selling point for this voting cohort. Because, the, I mean, unless they rid themselves of all of their foundational conservative principles, like just think about it. What are conservatives supposed to say to these single women? Vote Republican will make it harder for you to get abortions. We don't think you should get incentives to stay single. You need to believe in God, get married, have kids, embrace traditional gender roles and focus on your family over your career. That may be true. All of those things might be true, but they're not going to be sold on that. Because a lot of what you're saying there is like, hey, 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 you shouldn't be focusing on yourself here. You shouldn't be focusing on your career. You should be focused on getting a man, supporting that man, having children with that man, taking care of those children, and living a fulfilling life doing those things, doing the things that pre-second wave feminism, everybody thought, yeah, this is great for society overall and also great for women. It's also uplifting and wonderful all at the same time. But conservatism can't answer that for these people. So, you know, everybody can see a a track, at least somewhat, 
for how conservatives can go after other voting minority groups. So you've heard a lot of talk about how they're making inroads with the black community. Again, I hate saying the community, but you get what I'm saying. The black community, the Latino community, um, you know, uh, single mothers, uh, people that, you know, would run or care about school boards. Conservatives are doing well in all of those areas. But this is one where they just can't. Again, unless they just pretend that, that nothing's going to happen right? That, that they, you know, that, that with this group, that they're all of a sudden going to just change their stripes. I just don't know that that's possible. And what these women need more than anything, guys, is, wait for it, a man. But not any man, a very specific man. And his name is Jesus. Because for a lot of these women, they went to school, they got a, a great degree. Again, about 60% of the people getting degrees now in this country are, are women, and that's going to have a, a major deleterious effect on our society, but we don't have enough time to get in that today. But a lot of these women, they, they do get out. They, they work for companies that are desperate to have them and desperate to keep them, so they do make good money. And then they have the government taking care of everything that isn't really covered. And what do they need Jesus for? You know, it's almost impossible for a, you know, a rich man to go uh, into heaven. You know, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We've seen that from the Gospels. But at the same time, what are these women looking for? They're looking for stability in a life that they themselves can create, where they are the master of their own domain. And as any of us that have accepted the blood of Christ, that have turned to him and repented and put our faith in his sacrifice for us for the propitiation of our sins, we get it. We get that no matter what our degree is, no matter how many zeros we have in our bank account or any of those types of things or commas or whatever you want to say, that all that is nothing. It's, it's basically dung aside from having everlasting life. That's what these women need. Again, conservatism doesn't necessarily get you there, but the gospel does. But I do want to talk about this, and this was a last-minute addition to my notes here today because I was just going to talk about the midterms and lament. And just as a quick side note, I'm getting messages and emails now from people that are like, Kyle, you need to get your head out of the sand. You know, you're, you're talking about this, and look, the election's being stolen. And all these times now, it's like, okay, are Republicans going to be the ones now that every time they lose an election, it was stolen? Because I'm going to be honest with you, there are some things that stink to high heaven about this. One of the main things is like, how can every single election count that is delayed always go for Democrats? How many times have you seen an election that took over a week to count and they're like, oh, it broke for the Republican. It almost never happens. That stinks to high heaven. How about the, you know, the, the video cameras that are supposed to be doing live feeds of all these counting stations, all of a sudden going dark for hours and hours and hours. And then after they come back on magically, it's as if they found all these votes that go for the blue candidate. Like that stinks to high heaven. But the thing about it is, is Donald Trump says that the 2020 election was stolen. And a lot of you in this audience believe that, but he didn't prove it in court. He would get in front of a microphone and he would talk about it and he would send out his myriad of lawyers lawyers because he just kept like going through these lawyers and he would have these people come out and say these these incendiary things in public. But then when he had a chance to prove it in court, he didn't have the goods. So I don't care what Dinesh D'Souza says on some random, you know, a video that he makes or something like that. If you don't prove it in court, you got nothing. And so if you're out there right now spouting conspiracy theories of which you have no tangible evidence, you might be really, really careful about that. But we do need to talk about everything that happened in the midterms and kind of come out a little bit, kind of kind of come back out and float over the situation, because I'm as disappointed as every other Republican right now that it's a 100 percent certainty that the Democrats will keep the Senate. And it's looking like Republicans might have the House by like two or three votes or by two or three people, which which means a lot of legislation Joe Biden will be able to force through because Democrats are going to be able to peel off five to 10 Republicans on just about every piece of legislation we can assume. But we have to look back at the dominant news story of the year, and that is the Supreme Court of the United States overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Again, we it's been several months since then. The news cycle has turned over several times since then. But that's the dominant story of the year. So, and this was pointed out by Ross Douthat. He writes for the New York Times and and, uh, Albert Mueller talked about that on his show on Monday. But if you had to look at it before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, so let's go back to like May of this year and someone were to give you the option and you had complete control over this entire situation, they said, here's your two options. Number one, you can have the Republicans taking over the Senate and the House in November in the midterm elections, or you can have the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Those are your only two options. Which would you like? I would hope 
that everybody in this audience, certainly me, we would go for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now, again, we were convinced in romance for months that the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey was going to have nothing to do with the midterms. And that looks like that, that, that's not what happened. It obviously had a tremendous effect and probably swayed the midterms towards the Democratic Party. We, we know that now. Again, keep your conspiracy theories to yourself until you have hard evidence. But wouldn't we take that trade? So again, the name of this episode today is Baby Murder Wins the Midterms, but it was worth it. I mean, how many elections are Republicans willing to lose into the future to make sure that millions of babies can be saved? Because just so far this year, dozens of abortion facilities have been closed. And I think the last estimate I saw is over 10,000 babies have been spared from slaughter so far. That's 10,000 people that are going to live outside the womb, guys. That's a big deal. That is a big, big deal. So again, I'm very, very disappointed in how the midterms turned out. I think there's a lot of uh, turnover that needs to happen with Republican leadership. I think there's some chicanery going on with cocaine Mitch McConnell and how much money he didn't spend on certain races. He dumped way more money into an Alaska uh, you know, Senate race when it was a Republican versus a Republican, and he didn't dump the money into Arizona. He didn't dump the money into Georgia. He didn't dump the money into Nevada. And those are the ones that look like it's going to be turning over so the Democrats keep the Senate. I get all that. I'm frustrated, guys. But if I'm right, and if people that you know are coming around to this realization are now right as well, that abortion and the overturning of Roe v. Wade you know, led to that, I'm all here for it. I'll take that every day of the week and twice on Sunday. All right, guys, we're going to hit the quick hitters now. So let's go into the first one here. Donald Trump preemptively attacking his potential 2024 Republican primary opponent. So <clears throat> specifically, Donald Trump decided that it would be a great idea to attack Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. Okay. So on November the 10th, okay. And he had said some things about Ron DeSantis, you know, a few days before the midterms, which is, you know, a colossally stupid thing to say, but two days after the midterms, he put out on true social, again, his, his social media thing that no one sees, they take screenshots of it and post it on Twitter. And yes, I'm going to read this entire thing to you because if you read the entire thing, you really have to reckon with what exactly is being said. And at first I thought that this maybe was a joke, but then it was confirmed that there was, this was real. So again, this is November the 10th of 2022 statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. So let's go into it here. News Corp, which is Fox, the Wall Street Journal, and the no longer great New York Post bring back coal. I don't know what COL is. And all for the governor, Ron DeSanctimonious, again, not one of his better nicknames, an average Republican governor with great public relations who didn't have, uh, have to close up his state, but did, unlike other Republican governors, whose overall numbers for a Republican were just average, middle of the pack, including COVID, and who has the advantages of sunshine, where people from badly run states up north would go no matter who the governor was, just like I did. Guys, that was all one sentence. Let's keep going. Ron came to me in desperate shape in 2017. He was politically dead, losing in a landslide to a very good agricultural commissioner, Adam Putnam, who was loaded up with cash and great poll numbers. Ron had low approval, bad polls, and no money, but he said that if I would endorse him, he could win. I didn't know Adam, so I said, let me give it a shot, Ron. When I endorsed him, it was as though to use a bad term, a nuclear weapon went off. Years later, they were ex the exact words that Robert or Adam Putnam used in describing Ron's endorsement. He said, I went from having it made with no competition to immediately getting absolutely clobbered after your endorsement. I then got Ron by the star of the Democratic Party, Andrew Gilliam, who was later revealed to be a crackhead, by having two massive rallies with tens of thousands of people at each one. I also fixed his campaign, which had completely fallen apart. I was all in for Ron and he beat Gilliam but after the race, when votes were being stolen by the corrupt election process in Broward County and Ron was going down 10,000 uh, 10, votes a day, along with now Senator Rick Scott, I sent in the FBI and the U.S. attorneys and the ballot that theft immediately ended just prior to them running out of the votes necessary to win. I stopped his election from being stolen. And now Ron DeSanctimonious is playing games. The fake news asks him if he's going to run for president, uh, if, Trump, if President Trump runs, and he says, I'm only focused on the governor's race. I'm not looking into the future. Well, in terms of loyalty and class, that's really not the right answer. This is just like 2015 and 2016, a media assault collusion when Fox News fought me on the end until, to the end until I won, and then they couldn't have been nicer or more supportive after. The Wall Street Journal loved low-energy Jeb Bush and a succession of other people as they rapidly declared or disappeared from sight, finally falling in line with me after I easily knocked them out one by one. We're in exactly the same position now. They will keep coming after us, MAGA, but ultimately, 
we will win. Put America first and make America great again. Okay. So that was him going after Ron DeSantis. A day later, he posted this on True Social. This is ridiculous and stunning. Youngkin, so as he spelled this, was capital Y-O-U-N-G space capital K-I-N. So Youngkin, taking Glenn Youngkin's last name and splitting it into two separate names. Youngkin, now that's an interesting take. Sounds Chinese, doesn't it? In Virginia, couldn't have one without me. I endorsed him, did a very big Trump rally for him telephonically, got MAGA to vote for him, or he couldn't have come close to winning. But he knows that and admits it. Besides, having a hard time with the Dems in Virginia, but he'll get it done. So there's the 45th president of the United States. Again, the guy that I voted for in 2020. So here's some thoughts. After reading those statements from him, which are confirmed to be from him, does this sound like the guy that you want to be the leader of the Republican Party in 2024? Because again, for a lot of you, it's like, well, he's been that way the entire time he's been in politics, and you would be right. But to go after these, these superstars in his own party because he thinks they might run for president in 2024, is that the guy you want? Because you're going to get to make that call over the next couple of years. Another thought is that Trump was bulletproof in 2015 and 2016. He absolutely was. Every time he said something crazy, I remember whenever he said something about like uh, Megyn Kelly being on her period or something like that, I was like, oh, well, there goes his presidential uh, hopes. And it just only made him more popular somehow but he's not bulletproof anymore. Like far from it. So whether you believe in the deep state or not, and I obviously have some, some belief that the, the deep state is, is going after guys like Trump because they don't want him to actually drain the swamp. Cause if you look at the four years he was in office, he didn't drain the swamp. If anything, he made the strong, the swamp, you know, more, more strong and bigger and all those different things. But everything he said and did in 2015 and 2016, whether it was coming from the left or the right, he just took it. He ate it and he absorbed it and it gave him power, but he's not that way anymore. Because he's not in ascension anymore. Because regardless of what you think, after January 6th and after him getting beat in the 2020 election, his star dimmed. It certainly did. And at this point, you have to think, what would he have to do to make his star brighter? Because there's, you know, a quarter of the electorate that just loves Donald Trump and they'll do whatever uh, he says to do. But that's not enough to get him elected president. Not by a long shot. And even the MAGA crowd couldn't even get his, his picks for the U.S. Senate and the House over the top. Because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, most of the candidates that he, uh, you know, he endorsed, they won. But not in the races that were going to be hotly contested. Because, you know, he endorsed Mark Wayne Mullen in Oklahoma. Mark Wayne Mullen won by 26 points. That, that was never going to be in doubt. But all these really close races, maybe except for the J.D. Vance race in Ohio, his people lost. Okay. And, you know, it seems like at some point this week, he's probably going to announce that he's running for president again in 2024, which all but dooms Herschel Walker and what he's going to try to do there in Georgia. Now, again, it looks like Democrats are going to have 51. So Republicans are going to basically be scrapping together to try to get to 49. But that's going to all but damn him. And again, I, I feel the need to, to reiterate this. And I've been saying it for a while now, but I went, you know, fully in that in that area last week. It's time to go all in on Ron DeSantis over Trump. It's just time. Like, I'm going to do that. And it looks like a lot of people, a lot of Republicans are ready to come along with me. And I know this is going to make a lot of you angry. It kind of is what it is at this point. But YouGov did a poll after the midterms, and it said that more Republicans and Republican-leading independents now say they prefer DeSantis, 42%, as their 2024 presidential nominee over Trump, then said they preferred Trump to DeSantis, 35%. So in October, right, so a month ago, a poll that Yahoo News did, Trump was preferred 45 to 35 so it basically flipped. Now we're two years ahead of, uh, or we're basically a little over a year ahead of, you know, the Republican primaries and, and things like that, when things are really, really going to get heated up and all that. But as it sits right now, it looks like the electorate, the, the Republican electorate is moving away from Donald Trump and towards Ron DeSantis. Now, I don't think Donald Trump is even capable of endorsing somebody over him that beats him. So if Ron DeSantis uh, wins the Republican nomination, he's not going to throw his MAGA support, his keep America great or save America or whatever thing. He's not going to throw that support behind Ron DeSantis, which will make it an uphill battle for Ron DeSantis in a lot of swing states. So we'll see how that goes. But my big takeaway on him attacking DeSantis and Youngkin is that Donald Trump looks weaker than he ever has with this move. I mean, it was some, as soon as he did it and the timing that he did it in, with these two Republican governors that by all intents and purposes are doing fantastic jobs, it just made them look super weak. So even if you're a MAGA MAGA Trump guy all the time, make America great again, you sleep in it, you know, you wear the hat all the time, you got to look at this and be like, would a strong person do that? 
Would a strong person lash out against his perceived opponents that aren't even technically opponents yet? Like, how is this going to be bringing the Republican Party together where it could actually overtake the Democrats in 2024 to potentially retain the House, take over the Senate and the White House? A a weak Trump doesn't help with any of that. A whiny little bratty Trump doesn't help with any of that. All right, guys, next quick hitter here, a federal judge ruling that Joe Biden's student loan debt cancellation, big air quotes there, is unconstitutional. Okay, so this is according to the L.A. Times. The Biden administration has stopped accepting applications for the student debt relief it announced in August, casting doubt on a program that was intended to help 40 million borrowers. The Education Department's move came in response to a ruling Thursday from U.S. District Judge Mark T. Pittman in Texas, who held that the department didn't have the legal authority to offer loan forgiveness on that scale. The White House said it would appeal the ruling. But Pittman's ruling only intensified the program's legal troubles. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals had already barred the Education Department from writing off any debt while it considered a lawsuit brought by six Republican-controlled states. But I'm going to actually read this from Judge Pittman's orders because this is really important here. It's from the, uh, the, the main part of the order. The Constitution vests all legislative powers in Congress. This power, however, can be dele- delegated to the executive branch. But if the executive branch seeks to use that delegated power to create a law of vast economic and political significance, it must have clear congressional authorization. If not, the executive branch unconstitutionally exercises legislative powers vested in Congress. In this case, the HEROES Act, a law to provide loan assistance to military personnel defending our nation, does not provide the executive branch clear congressional authorization to create a a 400 billion student loan forgiveness program. The program is thus an unconstitutional exercise of Congress's legislative power and must be vacated. So I'm going to go right to my big takeaway on this one. The decision here by this district judge is big, but the timing is bigger because this decision was announced two days after the midterms. So a lot of people on the right are looking at this judge, Mark T. Pittman from Texas. They're like, yeah, you know, hero, hero of the Republic. And this is great and all that. And again, I completely agree with his decision. His, his decision is obviously in line and in accordance with the United States constitution. But why was it announced two days after the midterms? After droves and droves and droves of millennials and Gen Zers with all the student loan debt that they got for getting useless degrees had already voted for democratic candidates. Because in some of these ads, again, when they weren't talking about how much you should support them so they can continue to kill children, was like, you need to vote for us so that you can get your student loans forgiven. And to a 21-year-old idiot, first-time voter, they're like, yeah, yeah, that dude, I'll, I'll do that. Who do I need to vote for? Oh, this brain-dead guy in Pennsylvania? Yeah, sure, I'll vote for him. We got to keep the Senate so I can get my student loans paid off so I can go on more vacations and eat sushi more often, right? So... There's something that's happening behind the scenes here. Again, I don't have the evidence to point my finger to it exactly. This was not a decision that was labored on until after the midterms. This could have been announced before the midterms and could have had a significant impact, especially on all these close races. But something to watch as we move forward. There's something nefarious going on with this particular thing. The timing is not coincidental. This was done on purpose. All right, next quick hitter here. Matt Walsh refusing to use God or the Bible in arguments. Okay, so he was on the Joe Rogan experience a couple of weeks back and he was brought in to talk about what is a woman. And as soon as I saw that he was on the show, I was so excited to watch because it was like, okay, he got a full three hours with Joe Rogan. You know, Joe Rogan has mentioned what is a woman, the documentary. Guys, if you haven't watched that documentary yet, it's absolutely fantastic. You have to go uh, get a subscription to Daily Wire so that you can watch it. And, And Joe Rogan has mentioned it so many times on his show. And, you know, he finally had Matt Walsh on to talk about it. And so he brought him on the show in the first, maybe one and a half to two hours, somewhere in there was talking about the documentary. And it was really, really important to hear them basically talking about this back and forth. The one thing that I found that was interesting is they were talking about a very, very specific person that is trans identified or they identify as trans. I was on Joe Rogan's podcast. So this is a man that thinks he's a woman. And Joe Rogan kept referring to the person as she and Matt Walsh was referring to the person as he rightly. And Matt Walsh literally never called Joe out for using the wrong pronouns because Joe Rogan loves to say, oh, this is ridiculous and we shouldn't trans the kids. And you know, I can't believe it's such a pervasive issue. But then he will use the chosen pronouns of these people that don't align with their biological sex. And Matt Walsh didn't nail him on that. Hey, I wasn't part of the conversation, so it is what it is. But then after that, after they talked about the documentary thoroughly, they shifted gears to talking about marriage and specifically gay marriage. And they talked for close to an hour about marriage and specifically gay marriage, okay? And this conversation just kept going on and on and on 
And I kept waiting because Matt Walsh, you know, he's a calm guy. He doesn't ever get, you know, fiery and screaming and all those different things. But Joe Rogan kept cutting Matt Walsh off as he's talking specifically about marriage and how marriage is a specific thing. And it's, you know, uh, if you don't have marriage defined clearly, it's a detriment to society. Joe Rogan kept, inter- in, in, you know, interrupting him and saying, you know, why is that? You know, why does a gay marriage affect your marriage and all these different things? And I kept waiting for Matt Walsh to bring up God and the biblical definition of marriage. Because it's like of all the times in the world to bring that up, this is the conversation you do that in. Like perhaps Matt Walsh, again, you have to be, you have to give a little bit of grace to these guys because I've had people get mad at me for things that I've said and not said when I've gone on other people's shows. I remember specifically when I went on Mike Ritland's podcast about a year and a half ago. And the thing is, is you're not part of that conversation. You don't understand the flow. You don't know what either person is thinking. All you're getting is the final product. So you have to have a little bit of grace, but he never brings up God, never brings up scripture. The first person in that dyadic conversation that brought up God was Joe Rogan. He's like, what is it? You know, do you believe that because you believe in God? You believe in the Bible and this ancient text that says we shouldn't do that. It was Joe Rogan that brought it up. And so you would think that if Joe Rogan brings this up, that that would be your time to now go to the God-based arguments, to the biblically-based arguments as to why gay marriage should not be a thing. And Matt Walsh didn't do it. And, you know, I would love to put all the things in here, but I'll just put in the show notes. I'll give uh, in the show notes where you can go watch the entire interview. So you should definitely watch or listen to it. And then there's also some breakdowns. There's like some 15 minute clips of some of these interactions. I was going to put it here in the show, but, you know, we're going to be talking about some other things. But the backlash to this interview, obviously, a lot of the backlash came from the left, you know, talking about how Joe is super transphobic and Matt Walsh is transphobic and how they're basically literally killing people because they're anti-trans sentiments and all those different things. But then there was also backlash to this part of the interview from a lot of people that were on the right, specifically the Christian conservative, right? Matt Walsh, why didn't he bring up the Bible? Why didn't he go to talking about God? And then Matt Walsh, a couple of days after the interview came out, because I think it came out on a Monday and then on his Wednesday show, he responded to the backlash. Okay. He responded to the backlash for all these people saying that he shouldn't, uh, that he didn't use the Bible and he should have, you know, should have talked about God, whatever, whatever. And what Matt Walsh said is that he didn't feel like it was going to be worth his time to bring up any God or Bible-based arguments because it would have taken the, the conversation into a left turn. Because you go from arguing about, you know, the, the societal benefits of one man, one woman being married, and now you're trying to debate whether or not God exists, and it kind of gets you off kilter to where you, you can't really talk about anything specifically. And he basically told all the people that thought he was, you know, doing the wrong thing that they were wrong, and he's going to do things his own way, and blah, 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 very Matt Walsh in his style. Now. If you go back to episode 319 of this podcast, I did a full review of what is a woman. Uh, what is a woman? Again, fantastic documentary. I think it's important. You should watch it. You should watch it with your with your age appropriate kids. I watched it with my wife recently just so she could be kind of brought up on all this because she doesn't stay up on it as much as I do. And I remember giving up him a pass because at no point during what is a woman did Matt Walsh refer to God or any scriptural based arguments as to why transgenderism is ridiculous. And why, you know, gender, non-binary, non-conforming, and all these things, why these things are ridiculous, okay? And I gave him a pass because I understood the arguments, but I can see arguing against transgenderism without using the Bible. I can see it. I personally would use the Bible myself, but I can see arguing without it, okay? But with the marriage issue, we don't get what it even is without the Bible. We don't, we don't get this concept of marriage without the Bible. Again, Genesis 127, with the creation of man in two sexes, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them, okay? And then in Genesis 2.24, that explains it further. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the first time in human history where we have this purported description of a male and a female coming together in marriage and why that's beneficial. Okay. So I, I can't see not arguing and defending what they would call traditional marriage, but what most people should just call marriage without using the Bible. So my big takeaway on this, and again, I'm a fan of Matt Walsh. I love the things that he's done. I love how forceful he is on issues, specifically the pro-life issue, specifically on the transgender issue, even more specifically to transing of the kids, the kid issue. So I'm all for Matt Walsh and I love to support the stuff that he puts out there. But for my big takeaway, for a guy that purports to care about capital T truth so much, he seems very, very hesitant to point people to the source of capital T truth. 
And that should be concerning to us. So obviously he's very outspoken about the fact that he is a Catholic and this audience is mainly, you know, Protestant. And so there are some definite things there that, you know, in terms of evangelism and things that are happening within Catholicism versus Protestantism that are worth discussing perhaps at another time, but we don't really know how deep his faith is. Could he just be a cradle Catholic, a guy that's, you know, Catholic, he goes to mass, but it's not really a big part of his life. You know, he doesn't really consider Jesus and the truth of the gospel in his daily things that he does, perhaps. Or perhaps he is a, a super devout Catholic and he believes that, you know, the blood of Christ is, is what can save him and all those different things, even though that is anathema inside the, the, the Catholic Church and those different things. Perhaps that's where he lays. But if he continues to go down this route and every time there's a big issue that can be talked about using a biblical and godly lens and he refuses to do that, you just need to make sure you categorize Matt Walsh properly. So if you're a Christian and you love Matt Walsh, perhaps you shouldn't just default to his arguments all the time because he's not using the Bible as he's constructing those arguments. You know, one thing I've learned from Pastor Joby Martin is uh, when you're looking at society and looking at things, there are things that you should accept, there's things that you should reject, and there's things that you should redeem. Okay, so I literally like came up with our motion so I should, could like remember it. Things that you should accept, things that you should reject, and things that you should redeem. Okay, so some of his arguments that are biblically, biblically based, you just accept those. Okay. If he's making things that are uh, arguments that are contrary to the Bible, you just re reject those outright. But in terms of what we're seeing here, especially with his fight against trans transgenderism or whatever, even if he doesn't use scripture, I think that's something that you can redeem. You can use his arguments. You can use the stuff that he has created and you can redeem it and go ahead and add the Bible to it. So I think it's great to send clips of this back and forth between him and Joe Rogan because it's very cordial, even though they vehemently disagreed with one another. They even pointed that out at the end of the episode. Send that clip to a non-Christian that believes gay marriage is okay and we don't see the big deal. I don't know why, you know, straight people make such a big deal about this. But then when you have that discussion with that person, you make sure you stand on the truth of the gospel and the truth of the whole Judeo-Christian ethic that we get specifically from the Bible. So accept, reject, redeem. There are some things that he does that I think are absolutely redeemable. All right, next quick hitter, guys, uh, quick hitter. Here we go. I always mess up on the fourth one. Have y'all noticed that? I, I can't say quick hitter when I get to the fourth quick hitter. I got to fix that. But let's go to the fourth quick hitter. Nailed it. The United States quietly putting troops in Ukraine. So this is according to CNS News. During a press briefing at the Pentagon, a senior defense official, this was a couple of weeks ago, confirmed to reporters that U.S. troops are currently on the ground in Ukraine, apparently to oversee the shipment of U.S. weapons to the front lines. On October the 31st, a senior defense official and a senior military official held a background briefing on Ukraine at the Pentagon, according to a Department of Defense DOD press release. The name of these two officials who provided the briefings were redacted. During the briefing, the senior defense official spoke on the methods being used by the U.S. to prevent, quote, the diversion of U.S. provided weapons to Ukraine, unquote. According to the official, the DOD, quote, has not seen credible evidence of the diversion of U.S. provided weapons, but has instead seen Ukraine's frontline units effectively employing security assistance every day on the battlefield, unquote. In order to effectively monitor the transfer of U.S. DOD weapons to Ukraine, the defense official announced that U.S. personnel have recently resumed on-site inspections to assess weapon stocks in the country whenever and wherever the security conditions allow. So right to the big takeaway on this one. There is no way that these will be the only U.S. troops on the ground during this conflict. There's no way. So, typically, in most of the conflicts we see in, in modern American military, there's a few troops, and then there's more troops, and then eventually there's a lot of troops. Okay, so this is different than uh, the global war on terror. This is different than what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is different than some of the things going on in Africa and, and different things like that. But we're going to see more troops in Ukraine. Okay. Also, we've seen a lot about the corruption of Ukraine before, you know, the Russians invaded. It was seen as one of the most corrupt countries, right? Again, this is a center point of Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden's laptop, right? And things that were going on in Ukraine and how much money was going to the big guy and who the big guy was, who's obviously Joe Biden and those different things. Deeply, deeply corrupt country. Then over the weekend, and I do not know nearly enough about this story to talk about it, so I'm literally just mentioning it. The guy who created FTX, which is a cryptocurrency, one of the biggest cryptocurrencies in the world. This was a guy that uh, when billions of dollars were sent over to the Ukraine so that they could fight this war, Ukraine used a lot of that money to put into FTX, to put into crypto. The guy running that cryptocurrency, I can't remember the guy's name, he donated like $40 million to Democrats during the midterms. He was second only to George Soros. Um, 
And so we get, you know, the Democrats basically keeps control of the U.S. Senate. They may end up keeping control of the House, even though they, they probably don't. And they get all this money from this cryptocurrency that's, you know, being potentially laundered through Ukraine. And then a, a week after the midterms, you know, a few days after the midterms, all of a sudden the entire cryptocurrency, the FTX currency just explodes. Again, there's a whole lot more there that I'm not just going to get into right now, but man, there's some chicanery over there. But the last thing in terms of the big takeaways is we have to really think about as the United States and as the U.S. populace, what if the United States soldier is killed by the Russian military? Because the whole reason they're there is to make sure that this deeply, deeply corrupt government of Ukraine is not reselling the weapons that we're sending over there to them and the money that we're sending over there to them to buy these weapons are not being diverted to the black market where they can profit from the sale of these weapons that they couldn't have gotten other than if we gave them money to get them or sending them over there outright. Okay. So that's, that's where we sit right now. And we're being told that our U S soldiers are over there. We're, they're, they're just advising. They're just checking. They're trying to make sure that, you know, this column matches that column and they want to see the actual weapons and want to make sure they're being sent there to the front lines and all that. But with the shelling going on and with some of the things that the Russians are doing, if a United States soldier gets killed, what do we do? Like, what is the plan exactly? Because I think it's going to be a major issue if a United States soldier dies in Ukraine and we don't do something, but the us doing us something part could lead directly to a, a war that <laughs> ensures the destruction of the entire planet. Nuclear war would potentially be imminent at that point if we put our soldiers and our planes and our drones and our tanks and our whatever on Ukrainian soil to, to kill as many Russians as possible. And then you have to also look that doesn't just mean that we're going to have troops in Ukraine. If we're pushing them back to, to Russia, why would we not also just cross the border into Russia at that point? Again, a million things would happen before that would happen. Certainly Vladimir Putin would not just let American planes and, and tanks and boots just walk across the border. But that's what we're looking at. And no one's talking about it. No one is talking about the fact that nuclear war could potentially be right around the corner that if there's not something that happens, because a lot of people are talking about, hey, winter is coming and, you know, that's going to mean that the, the fighting is going to die down because people are going to be way too cold. And that's going to probably bring, you know, Zelensky and Putin to the to the negotiation table and they're going to try to negotiate, you know, peace agreement, all those different things. But if you're Zelensky, you can't do that anymore because the Ukrainian people like I don't know how many thousands of Ukrainians have died defending their country. They're all in on defending their country. Just imagine if, if the United States were invaded by some foreign power, don't you think that you and your boys and all that, that you would do everything that you could to push back against that? Would, would you potentially sacrifice your life to do that? Even though you never took an oath to defend this country from enemies of uh, foreign and domestic, don't you think you would do that? Of course you would. You know, even if someone just, you know, came into the state of Oklahoma, my goodness, they're going to have some trouble with me and my friends. Like, man, they're going to have some massive, massive problems. And so. Zelensky's just all of a sudden going to go to the negotiation table and say, yeah, well, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you this part of the Donbass region and we'll give you that and we'll ensure that, you know, Crimea stays with you. And then also we're going to make sure that we don't join NATO and blah, blah, blah. You know, as long as you get all your soldiers out, you think that's just going to happen? Of course it's not going to happen. So of all the stories that are going around, again, we're super focused on the things happening currently in this country and for good reason. That's one that we got to keep an eye on because we got troops there now. There's only going to be more. All right, guys, last quick hitter here. And this is a, a brighter note because I know some of these others uh, have been a little bit somber. But a UFC fighter boldly preaches the gospel in a Muslim country. So that fighter is a fighter named Benil Dariush. He is a lightweight contender for the UFC. And so he's a 155-pound fighter. He's on a seven-fight win streak. And he was on a seven-fight win streak going into his fight on October the 22nd against Matus Gamrut or Gamrat uh, in Abu Dhabi. Okay, so this is in the United Arab Emirates, obviously a massively majority Muslim country, and it was a great fight. So it looked early in the first round like uh, he he might not do very well, and then he just took over and absolutely did work in the second and third rounds. He came out with a unanimous decision for his eighth win in a row. Um, you know, congratulations to Benil Dariush, just a masterful performance, even when he looked like he was going to face a, a much much tougher opponent. But then, in his post fight interview in the Octagon with Daniel Cormier in front of an almost 100% Muslim audience, he says this. Ladies and gentlemen, after three rounds, we go to the judges' scorecards for decision. The judges score the contest, 30-27, 30-27, and 29-28 for the winner by unanimous decision,
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Benil Darius. Benil, once again, man, you always step up to fight. It does not matter who. How good does it feel to get a victory over a young up-and-coming fighter like Mateus Gamrot? Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, Daniel, but I gotta take a minute. I need to dedicate this fight. My people in Iran, I know you're struggling. I know you're fighting for freedom. I know it's a tough struggle. I want you guys to know we're praying for you and we love you. Let me tell you one more thing. This might be the most important thing you'll ever hear. There is true freedom, a freedom that no one can take from you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't ever forget that. If you remember one thing I say, remember that. I mean, just a blistering gospel presentation there. And you can see when he was talking about the stuff that was going on in Iran, because we've seen, you know, some some honor killings and we've seen some some things happening and the the populace of Iran pushing back. We haven't talked about that on the show, but that is happening. I, th- I know most of you are aware of that at this point. He talks about that and the crowd's cheering for him, right? Because, uh, you know, the people in the United Arab Emirates, they are not big fans of what's going on in Iran and, and the people there. Um, but then as soon as he mentions the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's why I left it going there for a little bit. You can hear the boos. He's getting booed. This is a guy who just won a big fight. He could be pointing to himself and pounding his chest and, and for good reason. And instead he uses it as an opportunity instead of calling for a title fight to call for people to come to the gospel message of Christ. Just an absolutely incredible thing. I mean, after 15 minutes of fighting, he's exhausted and all that. And he still has the wherewithal to preach the gospel, but he didn't stop there. Let's go to the end of his interview here. You have now won eight fights in a row. How much more do you have to do to try to chase down the championship opportunity as the belt is on the line tonight? That's a great question. But here's the thing is, I don't have the answer for this, but I will tell you one thing. I'm not a beggar. I've done everything I, that I need to do. You said fight in here. Whoever you put in front of me, I fought whoever. Here's what I will tell you. My crown will come from my Lord and Savior. I don't care if I have to win another 10 fights before I get this belt. I'll do it. Well, congratulations on another massive victory. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Benil Darius. My crown will come from my Lord and Savior. Again, in, in rough, you know, arguably, the most difficult division in all of mixed martial arts, any organization, is the lightweight division, the 155-pound division in the, Uni- in the UFC. Okay? That, that, is, that is by far one of the hardest divisions in the world to win a fight, and the dude has won eight in a row. And he's setting himself up to potentially be next in line for a title fight, even though it was announced that uh, Islam Makhachev, the new champion, is going to be fighting Alexander Volkanovsky next year in Perth, Australia. So, so that's basically not going to happen. But he's, he's in line for an enormous fight. He's talking about his crown, not his potential belt, but his crown and who's going to give it to him. So hearing him do that and doing that in hostile territory, again, this is not a, a territory where you can very easily just preach the gospel. Like they, they don't have free speech rights over there. I mean, Abu Dhabi's a you know, great city and the people that have been there, they're like, it's so clean and it's wonderful and all these different things, but you don't have free speech over there. I mean, you go off half cock talking about Jesus all the time. It's probably going to be a problem for you, but he understands how amazing it is for him to have the first amendment and to be a United States citizen to where he can say those things freely without being uh, afraid that, you know, he's going to get thrown off of a building or have his head chopped off. And so for us, for those of us that live in the United States, which is the majority of this audience, think about that. Like, what would you do in that situation? Would you cower and, you know, talk about, you know, uh, ones and twos and takedowns and submission attempts? Or would you take that as an opportunity to preach the gospel? Because most of us in our lives, we're not going to be up on stage wearing a tuxedo, receiving some golden trinket where we can start off by saying, I just want to thank God and I just want to whatever. And he didn't just say, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then go on to talk about the game or go on to talk about the fight or go on to talk about, you know, the, the last hit or the walk off or the whatever. He specifically talked about where he's going to get his crown from, who's going to give it to him, and to say that you can have hope like he does if you accept the gospel. Just an absolutely, absolutely incredible thing. Even if you're not big on fighting, you should be a Benil Dariush fan. He's probably going to get a fight coming up. You know, potentially he's going to get a fight against uh, Dustin Poirier, who just won a big fight over the weekend against Michael Chandler. That could potentially be on the same card as the title fight between Volkanovski and Islam Makhachev, so we'll have to see. But you should definitely be following him and be supporting him. All right, guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost out on Daunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So again, just a reminder, go to the Origin website. It is here in the show notes. 
to check out the full line of Origin and Jocko Fuel products. That's geese, jeans, boots, protein, energy drink, supplements, and much more. Use the promo code Undaunted, not Kyle, Undaunted to get 10% off of your order. All right, guys, here are the links I've got for you. For the rest, I've got the donation link. I've got the link to how to engage the top 18 pro-abortion arguments. And then I've got links to everything that I talked about in the quick hitter segment. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song, Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.